If you have your Bible, please grab your Bible out. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles at the back that you can grab. If, that's, if you don't own a Bible, that's a gift to you. You can keep that. Um, turn to, <clears throat> again, the book of Song of Songs. Uh, my name's Sam. Um, if you're new and visiting, it's, I'm one of the pastors here, so I'm going to be preaching through this passage. It's a pretty long passage, okay? That's just a warning. We're, we're going to be working through the whole thing, so just, you know, but we, we'll get there, and um, Lord willing, it's helpful. So, okay, we're in Song of Songs. We're, in, we're up to chapter 6, verse 4, and we're going to go to chapter 8, verse 7. Hear now God's word. <clears throat> you are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing, all of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince." Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath Rabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. 
The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. O that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one, none, would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she, was, she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. That's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we always need your help. Uh, right now, we especially need your help. I pray that for your help in just working through this passage, keep me from saying unhelpful things. I pray that we would see great wisdom in your word, glorious, grand wisdom in your word. And once again, you would show us the Lord Jesus, and that would be enough for us. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there was an article that came out on Vice. I don't know if you know Vice, the website. It's a very progressive um, kind of website with advice for young people around all kinds of things, relationships and etc. The title of this um, article that came out last year was this, What is Radical Monogamy? Subtitle, There's a New Type of Relationship Style in Town. Now it is... It is unintentionally hilarious, the whole thing, because this new style of idea that's, that they've just discovered is actually, um, it's an old thing that we, used, we called marriage, right? So it went like this. It, it, it highlighted the experience of, of a lady named Robin, I don't know how to say her last name, but it goes O-C-H-S, right? An educator, speaker, grassroots activist, she is. And it says this, says, her own journey towards embracing radical monogamy involved a lot of self-scrutiny and questioning the cis-het status quo. If you don't know what that means, we can talk later. But cis-het status quo. To explain the concept, she draws a contrast between reflexive monogamy, blindly accepting that, is somehow, that it is somehow morally superior to have just one sexual partner, and the more informed and conscious choice of radical monogamy. Now, there's the old fuddy-duddy way where you just kind of take what everyone's thought forever. And then there's like the actually more wise and um, informed way of figuring it out for yourself. There was a guy named Vincent who was quoted. He said this, Radical monogamy works for me because I've always wanted a gigantic love. I wanted to be one person's joy and delight and I wanted them to be mine. But then I grew up and I was told that was ridiculous, unrealistic and unhealthy. 
So I gave up on monogamy and practiced polyamory. But now I've come around to believe that all those other people's messages were wrong. If approached with intentionality, effort, and a willingness to grow, it is possible to have a love that's big and magical. Some people really do want monogamy, Vincent says. I think that's a healthy desire. And I hope that for those who want it, a radical monogamy will offer a totally new portal to a joyful, healthy, magical kind of love. Can you imagine thinking that? A totally new portal. Monogamy. <laughs> well, it's new as at least the Song of Songs. Or Genesis 1, you know. So let me recap where we've been so far for this radically monogamous couple. Um, in their romance, their country girl and her shepherd boy, they met and they fell in love quite quickly, I think. Very soon they longed for marriage. They longed to be one in all the ways that marriage brings. But they were very careful all the while to not awaken love before its time. They included into their courtship time time, their family, the community, and the family and the community got right behind them and said, yeah, this is a great thing. We are so excited for you. Finally, the day of their wedding arrived in chapter 4. Vows were made and their love was finally consummated. They entered in, as it were, into the garden of their love. Yet, we saw last week the reality, the sad reality of conflict that comes for all um, and it arose in their marriage. He longed to be with her. He knocked at the door, but she was not keen and left him on the outside. Soon she felt like she felt regret over that. She wanted to go after him, but he was nowhere to be found. And so she ventured out courageously into the city, not just the, with the, the potential of, of danger towards her, but the actual experience of danger at the hands of the watchman. But finally, she pursued her man. She found her man. And they entered back into the garden of love. So she says in, in chapter 6, verse 2, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So our passage follows on from that. Because one person that we haven't heard from since the, the, the relationship had its conflict is actually the man. Is he going to say anything? Where is he at? Is he going to potentially keep her at a distance? Is he wanting to kind of give her a little bit of coldness so that she might learn her lesson that this is not to happen anymore? Will he actually protect his heart a little bit because he doesn't want to go through the process and the pain of feeling that kind of rejection again and so he will close himself off a little bit? Will he treat her in a way so she will learn to not do this ever again? You see, the song of marriage reconciliation can never be sung as a solo. It is, Phil Riken says, it is always, it must be, a duet. One person can long for reconciliation all they want. Sometimes ache for it, be desperate for it. But if it is only one person seeking to reconcile, it is impossible. It's a duet. 
Um, it made me think of the musical Into the Woods. I don't know if you know the musical Into the Woods, but they, yeah, um, it's kind of a combination of all these fairy tales. And there is a baker and his wife, and they go through quite a journey through this musical of a fair bit of conflict in their, in their own marriage. And they, um, they have to overcome a lot of obstacles, and, and there's a lot of difficulties to, that, that arise, and they have to overcome throughout the musical. Right? get into all of it, but at the end of it, they look at each other, they sing to one another, because they realize, actually, after all of this, and because of all of this conflict, we're actually better off. And they sing a song called, It Takes Two. She first sings to him, she says, you've changed, you're daring, you're different in the woods, more sure, more sharing, you're getting us through the woods. If you could see, you're not the man who started, and much more open-hearted than I knew you to be. And so then he responds, it takes two. I thought one was enough, it's not true. It takes two of us, you came through. When the journey was rough, it took you, it took two of us. It takes care, it takes patience and fear and despair to change. Though you swear to change, who can tell if you do? It takes two. And so then they go through, they, they rehearse all the difficulties that they've gone through, and then they finally look at each other at the end of the song, and they sing in, in one voice these words, we've changed, we're strangers, I'm meeting you in the woods, who minds, what dangers, I know we'll get past the woods, and once we're past, let's hope the changes last. You see, she sings her song of reconciliation, but he reciprocates. And in our song, basically, we've heard her song of reconciliation. People came to her and were like, what is so good about your blood? Let me tell you. She sings. But will he reply? Will it be a, will it be a duet? Well, verse 4, let's have a look at it. He sings, you are beautiful as Terza, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. I think he affirms her beautifully and immediately. She is not left in any doubt. He calls her my love, my darling. He compares her to cities. You've got Terza, which was the, the first capital of the northern kingdom of Israel when, when Israel was split in two after Solomon's reign. And then you have Jerusalem, obviously the, the capital of the southern kingdom. Together, they would make up the promised land. She is kind of like a promised land. Jerusalem is called in Psalm 50 verse 2, the perfection of of beauty. But cities were strong. Cities are formidable. Cities show great strength. They are awesome, if you like. And I think he looks at her now and sees her like that. After all that has happened, she is only in a sense, grown in his eyes, in his estimation. He's, he's, he's in awe of her. She is awesome. She is magnificent. She is awe-inspiring to him. She has shown herself to be um, deeper in so many different ways that he would not have known had they not gone through this conflict. Remember that she did, she did risk herself. She did go out after him. She was beaten up in her pursuit of him. And he sees her and he is in absolute awe. He adds this, he says, you are as awesome as an army with banners. I think of like movies, you know, where, you, where there's, like, there's that, that, that vast army, thousands all, all lined up for war and their banners are flying and it's just an awesome sight. And he says, That's, I look at you now and I see you like that. I, I hadn't seen you like that before. You are amazing. He says, verse 5 then, turn away your eyes from me for they overwhelm me. It's just like, it's too much. I'm looking at it, then you, your eyes look at me. It's just, I just can't handle it. You are, I am in awe of you. 
Her eyes used to be doves, remember? Gentle, unassuming. Now he's like, turn them away. It's overwhelming for me. So he describes her again, and it's actually really similar to what he said in chapter 4 on their wedding night. Did you notice? He says, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of, among its lost, it, uh, has lost its young. Like you have, again, you have all your teeth. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. It's like, that's, you've said that before. Have you run out of poetry? You know, like, have you, have you, are you re- just kind of rehearsing? Because that worked the wedding night. Um, is that what's happening? Are you, having, are you trying the same thing out? No, I think actually there's a profound thing happening. He's repeating what he said on the wedding night, but now after conflict. What would she hear? I mean, he thinks about me the same as he did then. You are still. We have been on a journey now. We have faced difficulties. You are still. Well, as Shania Twain said, you are still the one I run to the one that I belong to. You're still the one I want for life. You're still the one that I love, the only one I dream of. You're still the one I kiss goodnight. So he repeats himself. He says, I feel the same way as I've ever felt. But he doesn't repeat everything that he said on the wedding night. Did you notice? He doesn't mention her lips. Actually, he doesn't mention anything below her face, not her neck, not her breasts. Why? Ian Dugwood explains, he says, since the conflict, the original conflict, was over sex to begin with, he wishes to reassure her that he is not merely interested in getting her to sleep with him again. It is their face-to-face relationship that he wishes to see fully restored. He he looks at her and says, no, I, I want you. I love you. Verse 8, he speaks about her uniqueness. There are 60 queens, right? 80 concubines, virgins without number. Like, of course, there's the, the Solomon way where it's not just one, it's not radical monogamy, it's, it's like, it's, it's everything. I just have anyone and everyone <clears throat> all the time. To be sure, that, that does make dealing with conflict with someone easier. Right? He went up to the door, he knocked on the door, and she's like, not today. What do you do if it's not radical monogamy? <laughs> you know, just go to the next door. There you go. No need to deal with conflict. No need to deal with all this listening to her stuff. No need to deal with that kind of like understanding one another and talking it out and having deep and meaningful conversations and all of that kind of thing. No need to actually have to learn lessons and change. You just move on. It's easily done, isn't it? How many in our world just move on? Whether it's a physical person or just move on online. A click away and there's someone who doesn't cause you any trouble. The Whitlam's um, Aussie band had a song about breaking up and it had this line. It said, she was one in a million, so there's five more just in New South Wales. Which means, even if you say it's one in a million, it's like, but not that unique. But what does the shepherd say? Verse 9, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her, who bore her. They're the same things he called her, actually, when he knocked on her door. If you have your Bibles, look at chapter 5, verse 2. He knocked on the door and he was turned away. But he, remember what he said, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. But she said no. And he comes back to her and says, 
the same thing. Turns out, um, it turns out she's not perfect, that she can make mistakes, but he reaffirms her, but you are the perfect one for me, and I'm not going anywhere. She might begin to feel things about herself. Oh man, I'm a lot of trouble. I'm very difficult. He could probably move on. Maybe he could have done better. And he says, no, what are you talking about? There is only one for me, and you are the one. And it's not just him who thinks this, notice it says, the young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, they praised her. Like, what do they say? Verse 10, they say, who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Who is it? It's her. Like, like, like everybody else is kind of in awe of her as well. They look at her and they're like, man, who is this? Like, it looks like, like the dawn, like the celestial imagery. She's like the moon. She's like the sun. Again, again, they say, like an army with banners. Who is this? He would go, that's my wife. That's my bride. That's who that is. How is she going to respond to all of this then? It's her turn. Verse 11, she says, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. I think it's so awesome. I think the whole thing's so playful. Let me just, you know, in response to him and all of that, like, you, 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 you're the one, like, like, I love you the same way. It's like, okay, let me just go, and I'll, I'm just going to go for a walk now down to the nut orchard. And I'm just going to see if everything's in bloom. I'm going to see if it's spring. I'm going to check that out. And before she knows it, she says, desires have just awakened in her. Like she's riding a chariot with a prince. His rock solidness, if you like, has led to her white hotness towards him. Verse 13 begins, I think, a new poem, but it builds on what we've seen so far. So this, this, this level of intimacy that we're about to see doesn't happen by accident. It is built on the foundations of what's just come before it. Verse 13, the, I think it's the chorus that sings to the woman, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. So commentators will point out that that word return can also mean just turn or turn around. It's a, it's a picture perhaps of her dancing. And they're saying, do, this, do a spit, like turn around. What, what's the purpose? We want to gaze upon you. We want to take you in. Again, everyone is in awe of this woman. But he asks then, shepherd, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance between two armies? Like if you were watching two armies and they were, like if you had an awesome vantage point and you saw armies at battle and you saw moves and counter moves, you'd be like, it's kind of like a dance. And he's like, is that why, why are you doing that? Why are you looking on her like that? Maybe he's thinking, I'm the one who gets to look at her like that. You know, like I'm the one, that's, that's for my eyes, maybe. Uh, but, but he goes on to describe her now, but beginning her with, this time, her feet. So usually it's been going top down, now it goes from the feet up. Why? Well, commentators think often it's because she's dancing. And his, his attention is drawn to her dancing feet. Now you notice that this time, you know, like previously, he avoided sexual inferences. That is not the case this time. Those inhibitions are gone. Chapter 7, verse 1, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble 
daughter. So the, the, even the word feet there includes motion. So they're kind of like the way you move is just so graceful. How beautiful are your feet in her sandals, maybe her ancient high heels, maybe, I don't know. He moves higher, and the next four descriptions are all rounded in shape, did you notice? Your rounded thighs, these are the words for upper thighs, maybe even her hips as she dances, are like jewels, the work of a master hand. God did very well in creating you. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Now, I said this last time, and they're like, like as much as the, the song encourages us to be careful with our words and have carefully composed words, to, to touch her heart before you touch her body, you don't just quote the Song of Songs, Okay? <laughs> You don't just say, your belly, heap of wheat, it reminds me of a heap of wheat. She's not going to, but it does remind us that beauty standards change, don't they? Verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, same as what he said on their wedding night. Verse 4, your neck is like an ivory tower, she carries herself with dignity, she has no reason to hang her head ever in shame. Your eyes are pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabin, like refreshing pools. He looks at her eyes. They're deep and inviting. He kind of just wants to dive in. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. He just he likes a big nose <laughs> and a big, prominent, obvious nose. And, and he tells her. And so, again... Don't. <laughs> but she looks down upon dangers like places like Damascus. Verse 5, your head crowns you like Carmel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. You can see the theme. She is captivating. She is awe-inspiring. It's not just physical. It's her. It's her character. It's her dignity. It's her godliness. It's her strength. All of that, he is just, wow, in awe of her. What is awesome is that he doesn't kind of qualify anything, does he? He doesn't like mix it up with a bit, you know, he's not like kind of butter, you know, like a kind of like a compliment sandwich. It's like, these are really good. Now, we could work on, you know, like your earlobes are really big, but I can, I can handle that because other parts, it's really, really good. Now, he doesn't like kind of like mix it up. Like that, but that thing is really annoying maybe when you do that or you say that. No, it's just like he's just overwhelming her, isn't he, with praise, unadulterated praise. It's amazing. It's awesome, I think. How would she feel, do you think, after all of this? Well, verse 6. He says, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. There's just no way she could have any doubts about how he feels towards her. That's an awful spot to find yourself. Just unsure how you feel towards me if you're in a relationship. He leaves her no doubts. And then he leaves her no doubts in what he would like to do after he said all these things. He probably, it does seem like he wants words to move into action. Verse 7, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. I think it's pretty forward, isn't it? It's like, you're a tree with clusters of fruit. 
I'd like to climb the tree and enjoy the fruit. He wants to get very close, says um, to smell her breath, taste her mouth. Obviously, that will take exploration, the kind of kissing that requires a certain kind of kissing. Um, I did, when I grew up, I, I, I learned about three different kinds of kisses. I don't know if this is helpful. I think it's helpful. Um, but there's, Annette, now I'm not going to like go too much, but, but there is the peach, there's the prune, and the alfalfa. I don't know if that, but maybe you'll figure that out later. But the, the alfalfa, that's the one that he's wanting to get amongst. Okay, anyway. So how will she respond to this? She says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved gliding over lips and teeth. I think she's basically saying, I, I think you will enjoy this. It's going to go down very smoothly for you. Verse 10, she gives herself to him. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. She wants to be his. She's glad that his desire is for her. That makes her pleased. So she doesn't put him down, doesn't turn him down. But she invites him, verse 11, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines are budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. She says, let's, let's go. Let's go to the countryside. That, that, that scenario throughout the book is the place of intimacy. It's not like the cities. It's the place where, you know, she's like, let's get up early. We'll have the whole day together and let's just go see. Let's go see what we find. Is the fruit in blossom? Is it growing? Is it spring? And then she says this at the end. Do you notice what she said? She says, there I will give you my love. You see the kind of dance to it all? He's like, you're a tree. I want to climb the tree. And she's like, let's go to the country. Let's have a look around. Let's see the fruits. And in that place, I'll give to you my love. Do you see? See that he doesn't take love? See that love is something that's given? You see, he woos her, and, and he's clear with her, and, and he's complimenting her, and he's touching her heart, but he can't take it. It's actually something that has to be given. Phil Riken writes this, he says, Instead of thinking of sex as something to have, which is exactly the wrong verb, we will think of it as something to give or maybe to share. She says, there, she says, there I will give you my love. I love that. That married couples in marriage, you don't, just, you don't have sex. You give sex. You seek the other's enjoyment more than your own. It's a gift given to another. Verse, verse 13 is how she gives the love. Notice it says this. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. It's like the doors of intimacy are wide open. There are delights and there are pleasures inside. And she's saying, come on in. There are pleasures old, there is new. He gets it all. Now, chapter 8 begins, and, and it begins a bit strange for us, if we're honest, right? Because if a guy hears this, he's not sure where to go, right? Because she says, oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breast. And ordinarily, if a guy's interested in a girl, and then she's somewhere, somewhere along the line says, he's just like a brother to me, you're like, 
okay, it's over. You know, it's, um, that's, that's the kiss of death right there. That's, that's friend zone, right? Friend zone is a tough place to get out of. Not impossible, but rarely, rarely ever achieved. I had a mate of mine and he, and he said this. Um, he had a line that went like this. He said, if she calls you mate, she doesn't want to date. Isn't that helpful? If she calls you mate, she doesn't want to date. Now, it can, it can reverse and it can flip the other way so that a guy might want to communicate the same thing to a girl. And my mate Jimmy used to say this. Um, I called him. I was like, is this what you used to say? He's like, yeah, that's what I used to say. And, and, it's like, and I live by it today. And it goes like this. He says, if I, call, if I call you mate, I don't want to mate. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? And so that's helpful. You know, like, it's called boundaries, Okay. <laughs> Now, she says this, she explains, if I found you outside, because she explains what it means to be a brother in that context. She says, if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. So this is like kind of just cultural rules, rules around PDAs, you know, public displays of affection. And in that time, you were much more free to be affectionate towards your brother than your own husband. And she's basically saying, if, if, I would just love to be able to be romantic with you in public and in private. Like, I just want the whole world to know He's mine, and we could be like that, and no one would give us any shame, no one would despise us. I just want everyone to know that we're in love. Verse 2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. So she wants to bring him home, to be part of the family. Now, she mentions her mother here, and this is interesting. She mentions her mother as she who used to teach me, and commentators um, point out that likely what she's, um, what, what, what she's explaining here is that her mother was the one who taught her in the art of physical intimacy. I think that's just worth um, noting along the way, uh, that, that there is a parental kind of part to play in the explaining or the teaching of the art of intimacy to our children. Children will learn these kinds of things. The question is where? Where would we like that kind of thing to be learned and taught about and understood? Is it their friends at school, as ignorant as them? Is it television shows? Probably not. Movies? I don't think so. Certainly not pornography. Magazines? Everyone's offering advice around all of this. She says she learned it from her mother. Um, Douglas Sean O'Donnell writes this in his commentary. He says, I know this is a strange topic and I wouldn't be talking about it if their mothers weren't talked about in chapter 8, verse 2 and 8, verse 5. But they are, and so here we are. And here's my word on the mother to mothers. He goes on to say, When the time is right, teach them about more than the birds and the bees. Teach them also about the milk under the tongue, the wine between the teeth, the lilies and the grazing stags. Teach them how to handle a young stag at the start of spring. Listen, if the talk sounds more like a lecture on mechanical engineering, then you're not listening to how the song does it. The talk, or talks, plural, should be alive with life, joy, and holiness. That works for mothers and daughters, fathers and sons. One thing that keeps coming up throughout the song, isn't it, is the community. Like that, that, that a relationship is never just the two people in the relationship. They're constantly bringing in family, they're bringing in the community, they're learning from all of them. But notice that the daughters of Jerusalem are never far away. You know, they get a little chorus just keeps popping up every now and then. What's going on? Well, it's, it's because they're learning from them. So you can see like a chain of things happening. The community and the family are helping the couple 
But they notice the couple are being watched as well. And the couple are, are explaining the things that they're learning to the next generation, to the, to the single women of Jerusalem, saying things, teaching them about love, teaching them about romance. It's timing. How to do it. How to encourage one another. How to touch one another's hearts. The importance of words. How to work through difficulties. How to get through conflict. How to reconcile. Where do we want all of these things to be learnt? I think the church, family, community. Notice the, 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 the women are mentioned um, in a couple of verses time. Verse 3 says, His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She's like always has a mind to, oh, I, I, you need to learn this. Because sex is such a powerful thing. Be careful. You'll find yourself going to places you ought not to go. Okay, now comes this poem which builds to some, I think, of the most moving, the most epic lines in all of the song. So verse 5 goes this. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? So I think the chorus is singing this because they're looking out and they're seeing that she is leaning on him. So it's not them, but people are asking, who is this? Well, she, I think, kind of answers their question, basically says it's us, and begins singing to her beloved, under the apple tree I awakened you, she says. You know, like the exact thing that she says to the daughters of Jerusalem, don't do until it's time, she says to him, now I did awaken you, and it was under the apple tree. But of course, it was in God's time. It was when she was his bride. She says, there your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. You see, with love awakened, now comes the thoughts of children, of pregnancy, of having a family, that marriage would lead to sex and that sex would lead to children. Now, I know that more than, for more than just a few, it's actually a really painful thing because that, that chain hasn't, that chain's been very difficult that marriage led to sex and longed for it to lead to children. And that's been very, very hard. That is a unique pain. But praise God for the godly longing to have children, to want children. I mean, that is a godly, glorious thing and an increasingly rare thing. When you think about it, the way our culture thinks about their own lives and their own need to, to put themselves at the, the, the you know, love of self and self-care and self, you know, me, me, me is, is the main thing in my life. And that means, I mean, children, like in my freedom to get to do what I want whenever I want, children, I mean, children, it's a while before they give back, you know, like that, that, it's a lot of work. Oh, so you're gonna have to, I'm going to have to start leaving parties earlier. Or maybe I'm not going to be able to go to that party. You probably won't get to, if you have a bunch of kids, you're probably not going to get to go to restaurants as much. Probably not jumping all on a plane and heading off to a European holiday, right? But praise God for this couple. Because here this couple longs for that day of children. Um, there's, I saw these videos going around. Uh, do you know Dinks? you know what Dink is? <clears throat> a double income, no kids. And there are these videos that were going viral of, of dinks talking to one another and saying, I'm a dink, I get to do this, right? And so, what, for example, the guy says, we are dinks. Of course we will go out every night for dinner and drinks. 
Then the kind of camera flips to her. She says, we are dinks. We have disposable income to spend on whatever we like and not on kids. Then the camera goes back to him. We are dinks. I'm going to go to the football game and play 18 holes whenever I want. And on it goes, on it goes, on it goes. And that's the, that's the whole ideology right there. I will do what I want and I'll have no kids. But here is our couple who see that part of the desire to be husband and wife is actually also to be mother and father. And that Psalm 127 3, verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of a womb, a reward. Okay, now comes to this really high point of the song. Verse 6, she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. A seal in that day was one among a person's most prized possessions because of how it was to be used. It was a symbol of commitment. I'm, I will do this. I'm good for this. It's like signing a document. You use your seal. It's also a symbol of ownership. This is mine. She says, I want to be the seal on you. I get, I get all of your commitment. You will do this. Like You will stay with me and you are mine. I want to be placed on your heart Right? Where, where, what's that? His, the seed of his deepest affections and longings and desires and his will has put me as a seal on your heart and your arm, your actions, your strength. Put me right there by your side. Place me there, she says, because of what love is. What is love? For love is as strong as death. I put on Google search and I went, strong as are, just to see like, what are the kind of things that it would suggest, kind of finish that sentence. And the, big, the biggest ones were ox, bull, house, oak, and mother. She goes beyond all of that. She says, you know what love is? It's as strong as, looks at the ox, not nah, bigger than that, you know, bull, deep, death. Well, death is strong. Irresistible, inevitable, unavoidable. It comes for all. When it gets its grip, it does not let go. She says, love is like that. She says, put me as a seal on your heart and your arm because why? Love is as strong as death. It is rock solid, love is. It is unyielding. That is what covenant love is like in marriage. She says, jealousy, do you see? Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. <laughs> not, not playing with words. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's I mean, jealousy normally is not something we think positively about at all, is it? It's like, what do we think of jealousy? It's like, oh, you just won't share, you know. Oh, you just cannot be happy for someone else to have the kinds of things that you have. And normally, almost in everything in life, that's not a good thing. We should be quick to share. We should be quick to be happy for other people to have the things, have successes even more than what we have. There is one thing, at least in our life, that we, it is evil to want to share, it would be wicked to be glad for someone else to have, namely your husband or your wife. She says jealousy is fierce as the grave. Joe um, Packer talks about this kind of jealousy. He says, this kind of jealousy appears not as the blind reaction of a wounded pride, but as the fruit of marital affection. As Professor Tasker has, has written, Married persons who felt no jealousy at the intrusion of a lover or an adulterer into their home would surely be lacking in moral perception. For the exclusiveness of marriage is the essence of marriage. 
right, to be jealous for the exclusivity of your marriage is essentially just to understand what marriage is, what it actually just means. And if you don't care, I mean, you don't care about the destruction of your family. So she doesn't say there should be just a little sprinkling of jealousy, does she? It's good to have a little bit of jealousy. She says, no, jealousy is to be as fierce as the grave. And the grave is fierce in that it overcomes. It is insatiable. It is not worried about your healthy diet, you know, or you're exercising so much. It'll have its day. It'll get what it wants. It is fierce. In Dugwood writes, the grave never loses its single-minded focus on swallowing people up. So too, the poet says, is the woman's jealousy. Jealous towards him. She has single-minded zeal for him. She is not seeking the attention of others. She is not longing for the attention of anyone but her man. She is not dressing in a way that will attract attention from other people. She's not posting things online that hopefully will get comments from people not hers. And nor should he. No, she keeps herself for him. He is to keep herself, himself for her. Notice the zeal is set on fire. So just, just the, the, the language is so elevated. It's flashes of flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. She's just grasping at language, isn't she? Flashes are the flashes of fire. Think of the flames of the Lord himself. You see, God is a jealous lover of his people. He is himself a consuming fire. God is zealous for his bride. He tolerates no rivals. There's often a picture in the Old Testament of idolatry and God will say, I am a jealous God. I will not share his glory, share worship with others. And he has zeal for our marriages. God has zeal for your marriage. Did you know that God has zeal for your marriage? So if you, if you break off If you divorce unrighteously, you are not just usually denying the zeal for your marriage of the other spouse, but you are rejecting the zeal of God himself for your marriage and breaking that off. You see, that's what we say in weddings. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Because God was there and he did the joining. He is zealous for your marriage. He is jealous for its, 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 its uniqueness, its exclusivity. It's a fire. It's a passionate fire. You know, marriage is like that. You know, it's not done in a boardroom. You know, it's not like organized. You know, engagement stories don't usually go like that. Well, we negotiated it over, a, over the table or something like that. Well, that would be just awful. No, it's full of passion, full of zeal. If you spread that flame and you think, well, I've got a lot of flame to get, oh, I'm going to spread the flame, what do you lose? Heat. You cannot possibly know this kind of love if you begin spreading out that love on other fires. Verse 7, she sings, listen to this, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. You see, love can be all of these things that we've seen so far, right? It could be strong, it could be fierce, it could be jealous. But if it's something that just can go away, what's the point of the other ones? It was just a kind of flash in the pan. Okay, that was good for a moment. No, but will it last? Will it be like this? Not just today, will it always be like this? 
That's what she wants to know. That's what it ought to be. It must last. Now, notice it doesn't pretend like it's, it, it has to last just a few minor hiccups, you know? It's like, well, you know, like we've overcome some things. You know, like it was a bit difficult there, like this little moment. No, she's like, many waters, floods come. They do. They do not quench love. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Of course, there are counterfeits. There are counterfeits that seem and may look like the same thing, like a good counterfeit is. But if it ends, if it doesn't endure, Paul is saying, but that's not what love is, right? That's what love does. No, love doesn't end. It endures. And at the heart of marriage and the marriage ceremony are the vows, which essentially go, there's going to be many waters. There's going to be floods. On a marriage day, they're not just saying, I love you. They're saying, because of course they love each other that day. They're saying, I will love you. And they take into account all the different things that could happen, better or worse. Sickness or health, richer or poorer, till death do us part. Finally, she says this, if a man, listen to this, if a man offered for love or the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So you can imagine a guy like thinking, man, love is really good. I would love to have that. I would like that. Um, and, and so I'm going to get it. And he is clueless about how love works. He's like, I'm going to buy it. And I've got, I've got a lot of means. I've got my whole house here. I would... He sees the value and he thinks, I, would, I will sell everything I have to have that. And she goes, someone who just think, thinks like that is going to be despised. But that, you can't buy love. If you've bought it, it ain't love. It's not something you can just kind of go down to the store, just grab it off the shelf, can't pay a monthly subscription, keep it coming. No, it's, it's not for sale. Money can get you a lot of things. You can fill your house with a lot of things with money, can't you? Like literally all the physical things in your house, you could do that with money. You can do that. You will not be able to fill your house with love with money. With money. That's the passage. She's, it ends like that. And we're putting together this jigsaw of love, this puzzle, and piece by piece, the song is putting together the puzzle. This beautiful picture that God has for love, for romance, for marriage. What are the pieces we've added today? I just want to close briefly with two things. One, the piece that it's added regarding being rock solid. And second, the piece it's added regarding being white hot. First, what is this passage saying about being rock solid? I think it says, and it admits, conflict happens. Not just little conflicts, but many waters, even floods. There are no promises in the Bible of a trouble-free marriage. But which way, brothers and sisters, will we go when it does happen? Will we move on? Go to another? Well, then you miss out on love like this. For which someone would sell everything they have to get. You will miss out on the pricelessness of covenant love. To be known and loved so deeply. Maybe you know what it's like to seek reconciliation 
to desire reconciliation, even forgiveness from your spouse and maybe you're just not sure how it's going to go. Like, I'm going to have to apologise for this, I was in the wrong and you just hope to high heaven it's received. And so you go and you share and I just pray that we'll be like that spouse. Maybe you just be shocked because what they offered in response to your confession or to your coming back and seeking reconciliation was just unconditional love. And the spouse said, I think about you the same as I've always thought. In fact, I'm in awe of you even more now because you came here and we're working through things and you're only growing in my eyes. See, that's the kind of love that God gives us, doesn't it? Every, doesn't he every day? It's not just at conversion where the heavenly father receives the prodigal running towards them and goes, I love you. It's not just that, that, that moment where the prodigal returns and he says, let's have a party, let's give him a ring, put sandals on the feet, like let's, let's go. His joy in saving you doesn't kind of end that day because he finds out, oh, he keeps sinning, she keeps sinning. No, his joy and arms open wide are for the daily battle with sin. Puritan Thomas Goodwin, Goodwin, Goodwin wrote this, he said, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving and comforting his members here on earth. That's what Jesus was saying when he's saying, like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. It doesn't happen one time every day, doesn't it? Why can we go to him? Why can we be so sure that that's true? We can go to him constantly with our sin and he'll receive us open arms. Jesus tells us, it's because my heart, I am gentle and lowly in heart. It means I am warm and inviting, not abrasive, not condemning, not giving you the cold shoulder. No, constantly I am this towards you in my heart, never exasperated by you, He's not frustrated, he's open and he is welcoming. John Owen wrote this, he said, There is not anything that Jesus Christ, please listen to this, there is not anything that Jesus Christ is more delighted with than that his saints should always have communion with him in this business of giving and receiving. And in the business of giving and receiving is us giving him our sin, our wretchedness, our unrighteousness, our failures, Forgiving, and then the receiving of what? Forgiveness, love, hope, reconciliation. The, John Owen says, the great John Owen says, there is nothing that gives Christ more delight than that. Wow. And so we actually get to show one another that kind of Christ-like love. Being rock solid. When we say we ought to be rock solid, don't think, oh, okay, so I'm emotionless like a rock. You know, I'm austere and I'm impenetrable. That's not the idea. It's warm, love, open-hearted, open arms, day after day after day, where the other is, and they know they are, a seal on your heart. They are a seal on your arm. So then what does the passage say about being white hot? I mean, it doesn't hold back on the passion, does it? I mean, just for a moment it does, and then it's just... Whew. There are some things I skipped. Um, you can ask me about that later. After their conflict, <clears throat> they are not just more rock solid than they used to be, 
they are also more passionate for one another. They love one another more than ever, I think. Her strength and character has shone through, probably in ways he'd never seen before. He wants her like he did that first night, and she, for her part, she just wants to take her away into the countryside and give him her love. They aren't just letting things get cold, are they? You know, after, after conflict, you might just let things simmer, let things settle, let things go on, let, let romance, if you like, or the heat go on cruise control. Let's let things lay for a little while. That's not them. They keep the flames hot. Now, it would be unnatural if, it, you know, together you were like a burning inferno every second of every day, but there always ought to be heat, putting logs on the fire, keeping embers blowing, so that you could always just add a bit and... Does that make sense? It might feel like, man, my marriage is a long way off that right now. I don't even know if there is, like, burning. I don't know if there is, like, heat. Maybe at all. But there is a way to heat things up even with the least amount, isn't there? Or even when there's none, to begin to collect firewood together. What what might that look like? To collect the wood together. Maybe it is literally going to collect wood, you know, going on, a, going on a walk, beginning to date one another, or give each other gifts, cards, notes, putting logs on the fire, putting logs on the fire, even in conflict, putting logs on the fire. The Lord Jesus is not just rock solid towards us, he is jealous for us, passionate for us. Paul prays things like this in Ephesians where he says that they, he just prays that they would have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You're just going to need strength to comprehend this. Romans 8 verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is jealous zeal. Nothing is going to take it away. Zephaniah 3 verse 17 has a picture of God exulting over his people in singing. Passion, zeal, jealous, self-giving love. Well, Christ, who is the, who is the ultimate self-giver of love? Well, Jesus himself comes and what we see is God himself in the flesh giving himself. Our God is a self-giving God. And we are the receivers of that kind of love. Did you know that your name is actually sealed in Christ? That you are impressed onto his heart. That his love for you is as strong as death. In fact, stronger. He went to death. He went to the grave and he rose again. And he will love you after your own death. He will love you eternally and perfectly. Friends, if you are not a Christian here this morning... This is probably, a, if this is the first time in church, you might go, whoa, <clears throat> not always like this. But the love of Christ is always there. His love for us is always on offer. It's the whole point. And you might wonder, man, is, is there such a love like this? I wonder if it's even possible. Because that's the, that's the question. Tim Keller says this, actually. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. 
it is what we need more than anything. What is on offer in the gospel is a God who knows you fully and loves you fully. And you just wonder, is that possible? Because maybe you come in and, and you have, we're talking about, say, you have all kinds of sexual sin. One of the most amazing things in the Bible is how Jesus goes out, he loves people with, who are the notorious for sexual sin and brings them in and they see their need, and perhaps it's them who have sinned in sexual sin, who are, who are the most wondering, is there a love like that? If there is, someone please tell me, and I'm telling you this morning, there is. And it's in the love of Christ. If you come to Him, He loves you like that, rock solid, white hot, for eternity. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. We thank you for all of your word, which is in the end the story of your love, the story of your grace for wicked, wayward sinners like us and that you zealously pursue. And I just pray that you would ignite in our hearts, first and foremost this morning, whether we are married, whether we are single, whether we are divorced, all of these things, whatever, wherever situation that we are in, that we, our hearts would be set ablaze with love for you. That for those of us who are married, we would have the fuel needed to love one another so that our marriage would be a profound picture of the love that Christ has for his church. Oh, give us that kind of grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.